Welcome to the LSE uh, for this evening's event, which forms part of our LSE Festival, whose theme this year is New World Disorders. It's taking place this week as part of a whole year-long series of events to explore how the social sciences can tackle global issues of the day. My name is Minou Shafiq, and I'm the director of the London School of Economics and Political Science, uh, and I'm very pleased to welcome Bridget Kendall here today. Uh, Bridget is a former BBC correspondent and was appointed the first female master of Peterhouse, the University of Cambridge's oldest college, in 2016. It was also the college that gave refuge to the London School of Economics during World War II. And uh, the entire LSE decamped to Peterhouse uh, during that time for security reasons, and we will be celebrating that common history on another occasion. Bridget was educated at Oxford and Harvard. She joined the BBC World Service in 1983 and became the Moscow correspondent in 1989, covering the collapse of the Soviet Union and the, the tenure of Boris Yeltsin. She was then appointed Washington correspondent before moving to the senior role of the BBC's diplomatic correspondent, uh, reporting on conflicts such as Kosovo, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, and Ukraine. Bridget has seen global disorder up close. <laughs> Her interviews with global leaders include Margaret Thatcher, Hillary Clinton, Michael Gorbachev, and Vladimir Putin. She's received many awards for her journalism, the James Cameron Award for Distinguished Journalism, an MBE from the Queen for her, in the New Year's Honours List in 1984, and she currently hosts the BBC's discussion program, The Forum. Tonight, she's going to be exploring the theme of global disorder and specifically the challenges that Russia poses to the post-war liberal order. Just a few housekeeping points for those who are using Twitter. The hashtag for tonight's event is hashtag New World Disorder or hashtag LSE Festival. And please put your phones on silent. We will record this event and provide it on podcast, all technology working well. Uh, so Bridget will speak for about 20, 25 minutes, and then we will open it up for questions and hopefully have a lively discussion. Please join me in welcoming Bridget Kendall. To the Thank you, Manoush. Yeah, yeah, I think I'll stay here. Um, it's slightly lighter. I can see you all. It's a bit more relaxed. And it's not such a big hall that I need to stand to project to the back. I have a microphone on. I hope you can hear at the back. So um, what I want to talk about today is Putin's Russia and its challenge to the post-war liberal order. And I wanted to start with the 24th of October, 2014. Uh, Sochi in southern Russia and President Putin walking up to a podium to deliver a speech to the Kremlin's annual Valdai International Discussion Group, which that year was based around the theme, the world order, new rules, or a game without rules. And um, there was a bit of a frisson in the room. I was there at the time. I was part of the conference. And earlier that year, in March 2014, Russia's annexation of Crimea from Ukraine had plunged relations between Russia and the West into a deep freeze. And all of us there in that hall were agog to see what Vladimir Putin would say, how he would use this Valdai platform to speak to the world. Would he intensify the downward spiral of East-West relations, or would he offer an olive branch to ease international tensions? And I remember that as he prepared to speak, before he got to the prepared remarks, which you'll find on the Kremlin website, he paused and looked round and said in Russian, I've got some tough things to say, and I know my speech will probably upset a few people. And so it did. <laughs> His comments made global headlines, sketching out a new approach to world order or disorder. Many analysts have seen it as a follow-up to a speech he gave in 2007 to the Munich Security Conference, which was seen as a bit of a turning point when he first began to lash out against the West, against the United States and its allies, for what he claimed was their unipolar worldview that was interventionist, hypocritical, and destabilizing, in his view. And Putin's 2014 Valdai message was to send an important message. 
On the one hand, he casts Russia as a rational, reasonable player in favor of international norms, open to collaboration and ready to accept new rules of the game if international partners were prepared to respect Russia's position and accommodate its interests. But on the other hand, woven through that speech was also a diatribe against the West, and especially the United States. Having declared itself the winner of the Cold War, he argued the West had imposed a high-handed unilateral diktat and was trying to remake the whole world in its own image, shaped around its interests, and thereby disbalancing the status quo and endangering international security. And there was also, in that speech, a veiled threat. If Mr. Putin's proposals for new rules were to be ignored, he said, then chaos would follow. There'd be new conflicts involving major powers. The rift over Crimea and Ukraine would be just a harbinger of what was to come. And as the Valdai conference title implied, the choice would be between new rules or no rules. In other words, if the United States and the West didn't play ball as Russia demanded, then Russia was perfectly capable of tearing up the rule book too. <coughs> At the heart of Putin's resentment and growing hostility towards the West was what he claimed was a hollow rhetoric of Western liberalism, a smokescreen of universalism which was not, he would say, really for the greater good at all. It was there to suit Western interests, hypocritical, neo-colonialism, where a Western elite behaved exactly as it wanted and other nations, including Russia, were relegated to a second class. And he would, in later years, in articles or his officials, embellish this by saying, look at the way NATO intervened in former Yugoslavia in, 19, uh, in 1999, launching its first ever offensive military attack, intervening in another country without the UN approving and bombing Serbia for 70 days to support a renegade province of Kosovo. And then later, after the Yugoslav leader Slobodan Milosevic came to the negotiating table and agreed to a peace deal, the West once again bypassed the UN to recognize the independence of Kosovo unilaterally, ignoring protests from Belgrade and Moscow. And then Mr. Putin would say, just look at what happened in 2003, when George W. Bush and Tony Blair, between them, ignored the due process at the UN Security Council and went ahead with their invasion of Saddam Hussein's Iraq without UN approval to topple the Iraqi leader and then plunge Iraq into years of civil war. And now here we were in 2014, and once again, Putin said the West had ignored due process and legal norms and supported the leaders of an uprising in Kiev, which in Moscow's eyes was an illegal insurrection supported by extremists to seize power in what amounted to a coup against the legitimate Ukrainian president, Yanukovych, who had fled for his life. And this time, said Mr. Putin, it was all on Russia's back doorstep and the West had gone too far. Already by the time President Putin was giving this speech in Valdai in October 2014, the Western world was already adjusting to a new and dangerously assertive Russia. As I said, in March that year, Putin had acted swiftly to retaliate against this Kiev uprising to order a mini counter-revolution in Crimea and use that as a pretext to take back the peninsula from Ukraine into Russia. And he set in motion moves designed to loosen Kiev's grip on eastern Ukraine, only partly successful. And many people remembered the day he announced that Crimea was henceforth to be part of Russia. It was in March 2014. And he provocatively, standing outside the Kremlin in a specially constructed stage, announced that there would be no respect for sovereignty anymore. Borders, rules, and norms didn't matter. As Russia's president, he reserved the right to intervene anywhere in the world where it was necessary to defend Russia or Russians from harm, whatever country they found themselves in. As he intended, Mr. Putin's pronouncement caused shockwaves. First of all, in the tiny Baltic states. They remembered Stalin's Red Army marching into their countries in the Second World War, etched on their nation's memories. And they were already primed for trouble from Russia because in 2007, there'd been a cyber attack on Estonia widely respected to be the work of the Russian intelligence service, which paralyzed the country's digital service for several days. 
There was nervousness too in Belarus and Kazakhstan and other former Soviet republics along Russia's borders. And in Western capitals, there were swift expressions of outrage and claims that for the first time since World War II, the integrity of Europe's borders was being challenged. This was arguably overstating the point because Ukraine and Crimea, you might argue they're on the borders of Europe, but they're not in Europe. And Putin was, after all, only doing exactly what he'd done um, six years previously in 2008 when he briefly sent Russian tanks and troops into Georgia, another former Soviet Republic, on an ostensible humanitarian mission which resulted in a Russian de facto takeover of two chunks of territory, South Ossetia and Abkhazia, which both remain in Russia's grip to this day. In 2008, the West, and particularly the Europeans, decided not to go to the wall over these two obscure little patches in the Caucasus, and instead they made up their differences with Russia to avoid a Cold War-style confrontation. But in 2014, over the annexation of Crimea, with Putin clearly signalling his appetite to have compromised had worn thin, the West responded robustly. And as we all know, sanctions were put in place, which have grown even tougher ever since. So here we are today, four years on since the annexation of Crimea, and it's become steadily more apparent to many people that Putin's threat of a no-rules disordered world is manifesting itself on several fronts. So there was that annexation of Crimea and artificially created uprisings in eastern Ukraine. And where has that led to? A war between Russia and Ukraine, which has created over a million and a half refugees and displaced people and over 10,000 civilian deaths, according to the Council on Foreign Relations. That's number one. Number two, a litany of suspicious deaths and suicides inside and outside Russia, including the notorious Litvinenko and Skripal poisonings in the UK, which has painted an alarming picture, uh, which suggests a campaign of apparently targeted assassinations, uh, what some see as a deliberate and sinister ploy to take out those who've fallen out with the Kremlin, whether to silence them or for retribution or as a lesson to others. And then number three, the mounting evidence of Russian cyber interference in foreign elections and to colour public opinion in other ways through leaks and bots and trolls, not just the US 2016 election, but in many other places too, raising awareness of a far-reaching shadowy information war being played out again across borders and often out of sight. The impression is that the gloves are off. And while Russia continues to maintain, it simply wants to revamp an international system which is fairer and which can restore calm and order to the world. In fact, below the surface, on a more practical level, a rather different Russian foreign policy seems to be at work. And what what identifies it? Well, self-interest, what's good for Russia above all. The main, main tool is not soft, but hard power and military clout to show Russia's prepared to act decisively and even ruthlessly to get its way. Think of Syria. And a pattern of behavior which seems aimed at cynically disrupting and obfuscating, sowing misleading narratives to confuse and muddle audiences, apparently to weaken powers in the West. And for those who follow Russian internal politics, this is all quite familiar. It's quite reminiscent of the strongman politics at home, where the Russian state and the president are all powerful. The veneer is of normal life, it's stable, it's prosperous, it's modern. But for those who dare challenge the system, beneath the surface, it's a place where if you challenge too much, you run the risk of being treated as a dangerous enemy of the state who must be sidelined or silenced. In this new disordered world, Mr. Putin is still prepared to bargain and act rationally on the international stage, so long as any deal that he seeks to reach is underpinned by self-interest. So, Russia still signed up to the Paris Accords on climate change. At various moments, he's been prepared to engage with different US presidents, Barack Obama as well as Donald Trump. He engaged with the French and German leaders to sign the Minsk Accords, aimed at trying to find a diplomatic solution to the conflict in Ukraine. But if you look closely at the last one of those, you can see that a lot of this is quite transactional. It's all about what does Russia get for it, for for, for giving way on anything. 
So Russia's attitude towards Ukraine is not to see it as a sovereign nation which has the right to negotiate with um, with its own um, to, to 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 protect its independence and its sovereignty. From Russia's point of view, Ukraine is a smaller buffer zone rather than a sovereign nation, an area which must meet the demands of Russia's security needs. Putin has actually has said on various occasions he doesn't think Ukraine is a proper country. And that is the crux, actually, of the rift over Ukraine between Russia and the West. And as part of this, this paradigm, this new um, foreign policy paradigm, um, if Russia says, well, we're prepared to negotiate, we're prepared to talk, well, if Russia's interests are not met as it defines them, then watch out for retribution and revenge. The Kremlin, of course, would say that this sort of critical assessment of what he's up to is unfair. Uh, and then the allegations laid against it just mirror what it argues the United States and its allies have been doing for years. So Russian officials cite not just those interventions in Kosovo and Iraq, but the regime change policies uh, of the West aimed at toppling dictators from Saddam Hussein to Colonel Gaddafi in Libya and, of course, unsuccessfully President Assad in Syria. This is just all big power politics, uh, ruthlessly intervening in other people's internal affairs in order to, for big states to get what they want. Similarly, says Moscow, it's hardly fair to blame Russia for cyber warfare when there are all those other reports of US, the US being up to the same game. Just remember the numerous newspaper reports of malware being unleashed on North Korea's nuclear program, for instance, or the Stuxnet virus that hit Iranian nuclear, the, the Iranian nuclear program, both widely thought to be traced back to the United States. And same thing when it comes to assassination policies, says Moscow. How sure are we that the United States and its allies are not doing the same thing? Just remember those instances a few years back of Iranian nuclear scientists being mysteriously bumped off on the streets of Tehran. And as for meddling in politics, well, it's long been one of Mr. Putin's biggest beefs against the United States and the Europeans that they supported a stream of so-called color revolutions which ousted democratically elected leaders in former Soviet republics. And even inside Russia itself, says Mr. Putin, Western funding of NGOs and opposition groups was a deliberate ploy to weaken Russia from within and destabilize his own hold on power, either to fuel regime change, as they did in the Middle East, and topple him, or to cause Russia to fall apart and disappear, just as happened to the Soviet Union in 1991. To Russian critics in Russia, in the West, this sort of argument has become known as whataboutism. Because Russian officials always say, oh yes, but what about Kosovo or Iraq or Iran or whatever? Always justifying questionable Russian government behavior by reaching for examples of it happening somewhere else. So let's leave aside for the moment the debate about who's right and who's wrong, who's to blame and who started behaving badly first, and address the bigger question. Because surely this more aggressive international posture, which today is seen as so characteristic of Russia, can be seen to amount to a profound challenge to what's become known as the post-war liberal international order. That system of values and institutions which rose up from the ashes of World War II uh, created in the hope that the world could be forged anew and the horrors that everyone in Europe and beyond had lived through might never happen again. The outlines of that order, I'm sure you all know well. So multinationalism instead of nationalism, progressive, seeking common good for all, not just self or nation, peace and prosperity seen not as a zero-sum game but for the benefit of all by clubbing together. It's what led to the post-war multilateral institutions we're so familiar with the United Nations, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the first seeds of an idea about a European Union, the Bretton Woods institutions of the IMF and the World Bank. And all this grew out of the personal experiences of those who saw what happened in World War II with Nazism, with fascism, when nationalism is taken to the nth degree and what results is fascism, oppression, war, destruction, and these things are not good for anyone. Yet, now here's this gauntlet that was thrown down by the Russian president in 2014 of a no-rules world, which does seem as though it is to pose a deliberate challenge to those posty, uh, lofty post-war ideals. 
a new type of hard-headed, ruthless authoritarianism, which actually we are, all of us, seeing take hold in so many places across the globe. The focus on self-interest, on hard power to get your way, on protectionism, on populism to entice people to vote for you, or even thuggish tactics to intimidate them to do so. We see it from the United States to Hungary, from Turkey to the Philippines. It's not just in Russia that this strong man way of dealing with things is back in fashion. Sweeping leaders to office with the help of populist movements and parties, which once would have been seen as too extreme on the left and on the right to be electable. But now we're seeing this new landscape. And the question comes to mind, so are the institutions and the ideas of that, of that post-war liberal internationalism, is all that in serious trouble? Is it all going to collapse? These days, quite often, people credit Vladimir Putin with being ahead of the pack, with leading the way in the switch towards populism and authoritarianism, the model that others have emulated and followed. So is that true? One of your cohort here at the London School of Economics, Peter Pomerantsov, who runs Think Tank here, has an interesting thesis on this, in a, um, which is going to be in his, in his forthcoming book. He was in Cambridge this week at Peterhouse talking about it. That Russia's embracing and shaping of this very confusing post-truth and no-rules world actually happened earlier. It began in the 1990s as the result there of the need to rebuild Russian society from scratch. Because when the Soviet Union went and the ideology went out of the window, the old communist structures disappeared, so did the social categories and all the assumptions. The world was topsy-turvy, it had no clear rules or red lines, it was unpredictable and incoherent. And in came the political technologists to manipulate elections and create new populist myths to tap into, population, into people's emotions, to allow the government to shape the electorate, to govern, to take it with it, to create enemies, to rally support against, with cynical disregard for what was true or right. So myths like in the 1996 elections, um, Yeltsin was needed, had to be re-elected to stave off a communist attempt to seize back power. Or uh, in the early 2000s, just when Putin came to power, um, he needed to wield a heavy stick and um, crack down on his enemies to prevent the oligarchs from sealing, seizing control. Or more recently, uh, in the way he talks about the West, that the collapse of the Soviet Union was all the result of a Western plot and the West remains a dangerous enemy which must be kept at bay, and therefore all Russians must rally around the idea of the Russian state and be ready to fight the holy war to save Mother Russia. So this cynical move, um, Peter Pomerantsev argues, set the scene for Putinism, a world where those in charge can wield whatever power they like, choose whatever arguments suit the moment and get away with it, so long as they tap into enough popular support to sweep the people along. And that, in turn, has set the scene for the world we now find ourselves in, as the election of Donald Trump has so graphically shown. This is why Hungarians voted, voted for Orban, or why disgruntled Brits voted for Brexit, or why his supporters in the US voted for Trump. If everything around you is confusing and unsettling, don't worry about the details and the consequences. Don't worry what the experts say or what the so-called facts might be. Focus on the simple, reassuring message that may not add up to much, but it resonates with your gut feelings and it divides the world into that comforting paradigm of them and us. Well, I'm not, uh, I think these ideas are very interesting. I'll be very interested to see Peter's book when it comes out, how he fleshes this out. I'm not quite sure, though, that this shift towards populism is all Russia and Putin's doing. Yes, Putin certainly came to power and enjoyed this huge wave of, of popularity in Russia because he met a need. But they were very Russian conditions. And yes, in the short time globally, he did seem to reflect a certain zeitgeist. But I think we'd probably all agree that the wider political mood today is a response to so many factors that don't just follow the Russian lead. I won't dwell on the list here because I'm sure it's been discussed at length during your festival in the last week. And especially by all of us since the Brexit results, since the Trump election, the backlash against globalization, the rise in automation, which has exacerbated a sense of powerlessness and dismay among manufacturing workers, the widening gap between those not so well off and a tiny elite of super rich, a political elite no longer seemingly listening to the electorate, 
the rise in incomes in emerging um, country, uh, co uh, economies, which have allowed the, the rise of the rest, as it's called, but which has hit developing, developed nations, the shock, of course, of the 2008 crash and the impact of the social media digital revolution. But if all that, you can't really say that Putin's the architect of that and therefore not the architect of the new world disorder. Nonetheless, it does raise the question, we still have to ask the question, if he's sort of the poster boy of this, how serious is this challenge, this challenge of disorder? How seriously is the old liberal internationalist order in trouble? So let's just look, go back a bit in history and look at that concept, that idea of liberal democracy after World War II. I explained why it was created, but what was it, of course? What did it do? How far was the ideal adhered to? Yes, there was lots of progress and prosperity and better lives for many. Uh, economists will give you the figures. I'll not go into them now. We all know that. But you only have to look at the millennial go goals that were achieved. I don't think I ever thought in the year 2000 that those ambitious goals to halve um, poverty and increase education for primary schools and so on, that they would be met. It's extraordinary. They did. We all know the reasons why. It's partly because, it's, it's in large part, in the macro terms, it's because of the huge strides made in countries like India and China. And multilateralism, we'll all agree probably, has brought lots of benefits. The values enshrined in the UN Charter and the UN Declaration of Human Rights have turned out to be worth fighting for and upholding. And some of those structures that were put up in such haste after World War II have survived extraordinarily for 70 years, the United Nations, for example. And I would argue that the values which are espoused in the UN Charter, these really are universal rights and values. They're not just Western concepts. They're what all individuals want for themselves and their families. Freedom from disease and poverty and ignorance and oppression. Freedom to live with dignity and hope, make their own choices, hold their governments accountable, enjoy the protection of the rule of law and access to reliable information. But we have to ask, how well was this vision translated into reality? How far was that ideal lived up to? Because the new institutions, let's face it, were heavily weighted towards World War II victors. Look at the um, permanent members of the UN Security Council. Britain, France, the United States, Russia. Nowadays, what Britain, France doing there? The leadership of the IMF and the World Bank heavily weighted towards the US and France. Not an equal distribution of power in the 1940s and so far less ever since then, till we've got to the point now where it, they frankly look hopelessly outdated, not reflecting current geopolitical balances of power in the world at all. And secondly, the post-war liberal order did not end conflict. By the late 1940s, it was ushering in a new one, the Cold War, that ideological battle between East and West, between capitalism and communism, which defined global politics for decades. So the motifs that emerged in the West to um, explain the ideals of liberal internationalism were also there to counter the Soviet Union's claim that it was the bright new future. So freedom, happiness, and the American way, as Superman used to say, which are based on valid aspirations, freedom and prosperity. But these were also tainted in a way. They were propaganda slogans of the West, ideological pillars of the Cold War to provide evidence that the world that life in the West was so much better in the East. And so what should have been a bipartisan vision of a post-war liberal order was overlaid with a Cold War mentality. It became a binary construct. And on both sides of the ideological divide, in the communist world as well as the capitalist, governments were claiming, after all, that they were the custodians of the true flame. The Soviet Union would say, we uphold the principles of equality and, um, and prosperity. Um, the, the slogan they used to use was Druzhba Naroda, friendship of nations. They were the, where they were the world of true multinationalism and egalitarianism. So just as each side claimed that its system and its values were superior, in a mirror image they accused each other of the same evils, of colonialism, of repression and corruption. I admit this wasn't an even-handed fight. Stalinism was horrific. Brezhnev's Russia was less cruel, but it was still punitive, controlling, and incompetent. The Soviet's order was ludicrous. It was a hollow shell. It often meant the opposite of what it meant, a looking-glass land of absurdities. 
I lived in the Soviet Union for two years as a student in the 70s and 80s, and I can testify that it was a stultifying, repressive, dull, corrupt, and dysfunctional place. And that's why Gorbachev brought in his reforms. We can't go on living like this, he said. But the point is that this ideological battle allowed both sides to concentrate on bashing the enemy and not look too hard at themselves. And so the Western order was also flawed. Some of the values that Western nations were so proud of were never fully tested. Yes, Western nations enjoyed more choice and prosperity, but at the cost to others. Poorer nations, often the producers of the raw materials that fed Western wealth in this pre-digital, not yet globalized world, were comfortably distant, their problems remote from Western concerns. The third world, as it was known. And in Europe, the Cold War was an incredibly useful alibi for being able to uphold principles which people didn't have to live by. So the West could blame the Soviet bloc for not having freedom of movement, com quite confident that because of the Iron Curtain, uh, Eastern citizens would not come flooding over into the, into the Western world. Hence the hysteria when the Soviet Union collapsed in the early 1990s that millions might flood across the open borders from the East, which didn't happen, but we all know the alarm and dismay and hysteria indeed there was in the last few years at the prospects of immigrants flooding across the Mediterranean Sea to disrupt the equilibrium of Europe. Where was the championing of freedom of movement then? So the world has changed. The alibi of the Cold War has been removed. The division of the world has gone where the poor no longer were not able to travel to our world. The West is having to face up to its hypocrisy. It's also forgetting the lessons of the 1940s. The people who actually remember the horror of World War II, most of them are no longer with us. And post-2008 and the economic doldrums it's brought, we're all less generous. And the swift onslaught of technology is posing new challenges that are making people more fearful and threatening social cohesion. There's the danger of fragmentation, of confusion, of lack of trust, only increasing. So is it all about to collapse? Is the liberal order that was set up in the 1940s really being swept away? Well, I don't want to end on a gloomy note. And I think you have to take a longer view. Number one, the lessons of history, I would say, mean that dictatorships often don't end well. Leaders end up being trapped in the systems they put in place to keep themselves in power. They succumb to stasis and stagnation. The systems of control are in the end too rigid to withstand big shocks. Look at Putin's Russia. Every election he, he, he runs in, he's running against his past record and how well he did last time. It's hard to keep his popularity going up when it reaches 80%. And indeed, this last summer, his popularity plunged 20% over the new pension rules that he brought in. That's a lot, 20%. Number two, he has no succession strategy. He can't afford to in case he looks like a lame duck. And there's no vision of the future. It's just about keeping a grip on the here and now, stopping his inner circle and his competing security services from fighting with each other in battles which we don't see. And the appearance of strength, this victories in Syria, strutting the world stage, hide weakness, lack of investment in infrastructure, the abandonment and disappearance of villages, a shrinking Russian population, flight of capital, flight of educated young Russians, no sense of where Russia is heading, of what its strategic plans might be, for example, for a non-carbon future one day when it struggles to get customers for its oil and gas. In one recent poll, nearly half Russians now think their country is going in the wrong direction. So that's one thought. And the second thing is, our country, just like the United States, may be suffering from this same syndrome of disorder, but we're not like Putin's Russia. Whatever the shambles in Westminster or Washington at the moment, these are still democracies and they still have the resilience to withstand shocks and adapt to crises and weather inappropriate precedents. The UK is still a rules-based society. It's not ruled by fear and arbitrary decrees. And it's not just about laws, it's about values. I believe our society, most of it, is still based on the expectation of decency and accountability, the need to protect the vulnerable, be fair, educate our children to be good citizens, and in their own time, good parents. And I profoundly believe that what's true here in the United Kingdom is actually true everywhere, in every country, however poor, however inadequate the government. 
When people are given the chance to choose and the proper information to make informed choices, they want to seek the same thing, basic rights and dignity of the individual, the ability to look after their families, to help the less fortunate, to, to do well, but to do well by others too. I saw this when I was a student in the Soviet Union in the 1970s and 80s. People wanted to live decent, honest lives. They were simply caught in a system which trapped them and, and didn't make that possible. I've seen that in my many years as a diplomatic correspondent in a lot of tough places in the world. Ordinary people want to lead decent, good lives. They want to help each other and they, they would like their governments to help them too. That, as I said, is why the Soviet Union ended. It didn't end because of a Western conspiracy, as Mr. Putin and those around him now like to claim. People wanted their lives back. And they turned to Putin in that analysis of Peter Pomerantsev's because of the trauma of what followed in the 1990s. The terrible sudden collapse of the Soviet Union meant it was a world in disarray. But that was part of a transition out of this turmoil. I don't think it's Russia's long-term path, and I also don't think it's a path that we are all destined to follow. So in conclusion, I think we need to breathe life back into the words and ideas that have been hollowed out. Democracy is not a dirty word. Internationalism is useful and matters. Transparency is what keeps our societies honest. And above all, the word truth, which in this post-truth world has already been consigned to dust, but it should not be. There is no equivalence between our societies and the sort of order that President Putin and those around him have for the moment imposed on Russia, and we need to recognize the difference. We need to hold on to the essence of our societies, and we need to speak up for the values that underpin them. I'll end with an anecdote. In the 1990s, after the Soviet Union fell apart, Russian businessmen began appearing in Europe. There weren't very many of them at first. Um, they became more and more. And I remember talking to one Russian businessman and musing with him, as more Russians begin to do business with the West, did he think that Russia would change? Would exposure to the Western way of doing things mean that Russia would become more like Europe, more accountable to the rule of law, more transparency, less corrupt, and so on? Or, or because Russia was such a big country and had lived under this bizarre system of, of Soviet communism for so long, would the extent of the corruption of power in the country in a country of that size, mean that it would never change, that it would be impervious to being infected by European values, if you like. And he said, no, 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 you've got it the wrong way around. It's not we who are going to become more like you. You're going to become more like Russia. <laughs> a dangerous prediction, and I think we need to make sure that it's wrong. <laughs> Thank you, Bridget, for that sweeping survey of what has happened in Russia and its place in the world over many, many decades and some of the challenges it poses to the rest of the world. Maybe I'll start with an opening question and then I'll turn to the audience to, uh, to, to, to ask some. I mean, I, one of the things that puzzled me was that Russia was not underrepresented in the old liberal order. I mean, if you, you know, one of the arguments that's traditionally made about the Chinese is that you know, they were very underrepresented in the liberal order at the UN in terms of the Bretton Woods institutions. You didn't see many senior Chinese in those organizations. They didn't have very large shareholdings. Russia had a pretty fair shake at, those, at that structure. So it's... it's I guess what I, what, I, what I observe now is that they had, they had a big voice, partly because of their military, but also because of what had happened after World War II. But their real importance had diminished because their economy was devastated after the collapse of communism, and their military was much diminished relative to others. And so in some sense, Putin's dissatisfaction with the order and his current tactics for influence, in some ways, how can I say, he's, he's trying to retain his power on the cheap. So cyber warfare is much cheaper than trying to maintain a sizable military. Is that a fair diagnosis? Because, or, or do you think there's something that, that actually Russia wanted to see a different structure to the international order? 
and did feel it was underrepresented? Um, I think there's, there is nostalgia for the Cold War days when Russia's nuclear weapons mattered more. You know, that's another thing that's changed. Mm. Nuclear power doesn't give you the same seat at the table that it used to. Maybe 9-11 was the defining moment. But asymmetrical warfare was already on the way in before that. Um, Russia likes to... I mean, I think that's why they've always liked the arms control gambit. You know, if they can sit at the top table with the United States and talk about nuclear weapons, they're comfortable in feeling that they still are in that position where between them they hold 90% of the world's nuclear missiles. So... um, that's one thing, nostalgia. I mean, nostalgia, I mean, the, the people used to think of the Soviet Union as a threat, as a, as a real threat because of those nuclear weapons. Um, and I've, I've observed an, an interesting evolution in the way the Kremlin has spoken since Mr. Putin came in in the early 2000s when people would complain, Russian officials would complain to me, why are you going back to these old Cold War stereotypes and treating us like a threat. You know, you shouldn't do that. We should be partners. Uh, Move towards, in about 2012, Putin started using, in one of his speeches, he said, you know, we are a Russian bear and a bear can have claws. And when you turn on it, it can cause a lot of damage. Positioning Russia differently as a threat. And it is a threat of disruption now. Um... Because I mean, he does quite often, you know, he has over, you, you can track the speeches, you can do a Google of Putin and nuclear and see how often he'll say we might stage nuclear weapons in the Crimea or we might stay, turn them into Leningrad towards Europe. But it, doesn't, it doesn't resonate in the same way anymore. So um, the new disruption has more traction. And um, I think that part of what Mr. Putin wants to say to himself, to those around him, but possibly also the Russian people, is we are back, we are strong, we do count. And um, we can do it in ingenious ways. We're creative. I mean, let's face it, I mean, I remember when I was um, correspondent in the the late 80s and 90s, there were some brilliant young Russian computer programmers, and they are on the front line now in this new war. (laughs) Okay, let's open it up. Take the lady here. I'll take a batch of threes, if I may. So one here, one here, and then the gentleman in the back. Uh, Thanks so much for the interesting talk. Uh, I have a question. Uh, You've been describing uh, Russia's actions uh, in the geopolitical scene largely as proactive, but there's also a reactive element, and specifically, if you recall, expansion of of NATO was a major trigger and perhaps a game-changer in retrospect, defining uh, Russia's policies going forward and basically what what we are seeing now is Russia dealing with that event you know like so the question is you know like and potentially you were observer of the process and participant during those days so I don't know if you have any observations comments and maybe suggestions how NATO expansion and inclusion basically of Visegrad countries and the Baltics could have been or if it should have been handled differently Thanks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The lady here. Uh, some say uh, non-liberal countries such as uh, Russia and China have exploited the multilateral nature of international institution. So, how do you uh, think about the argument? And can you just say that again? Uh, so, non-liberal countries have exploited the multilateral nature of international institution. And if the liberal order is demised in near future, it's going to be because of the threat posed by uh, emerging power, including China, who is authoritarian, where it's going to be internal problem. Thank you. And then the gentleman. Hello, uh, Thomas. Um, You've been apparently present exactly in these 90s, and, and all of my Russian friends, and when I'm in Russia, a lot of people you know, turn to the events in the 90s and the society in the 90s when they're trying to, not to justify or defend, but trying to understand Putin. Probably you can uh, elaborate a little bit more also on, on, on things like the discussions, you know, what would be the alternative to Putin? You know, was, were there other people which 
some people say, and again, not to defend Putin, but to say, you know, there were m much worse people and much, you know, let's say, uh, you know, strange, uh, let's say, structures. Uh, and I still remember when, when Putin came to power before, you know, the Sochi and, and, and all these speeches, you know, some in the West said, well, it's interesting, you know, it's a kind of an internationalist, apparently guy, you know, we can do business with, remember the Americans kind of, I want to do business with, the reset uh, button and all this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, it's, you know, much better than what we feared what will, could come after Yeltsin. Probably you can reflect a little bit on these critical times in the 90s in, in Russia firsthand. Okay, so... Um all very good questions. Yes, NATO expansion, I completely take the point. I mean, I could have talked about it, but I didn't because you know, there wasn't time. Um, I think it's complicated, though. I mean, you, you know, um, number one, uh, in the, when, it, when it first happened, I mean, there were, there were um, analysts in the West who said this, this will have long-term bad consequences. But there were others who... Um, uh, it, it wasn't immediately obvious that, that it was a problem to invite in Poland, Czechoslovakia. And they very much wanted to come in. And I think there was a feeling that to keep them out might also be dangerous because this would be frustrating countries which you had to also bring in to, you know, the, this all happened very quickly in 1989. People were not expecting it so quickly. I think that's what we forget. Mm -hmm. I interviewed, um, in 1987, I interviewed... Havel, then a playwright and a dissident in Prague, and Yuzhi Dinspear, at that point a stoker who turned up to see me in his boiler suit with a black face, to ask them how soon did they think there could be any reforms in Soviet Czechoslovakia. It was the anniversary, I was doing an anniversary program on 1968, and they both said, not in my lifetime. Within two years, one was president and the other was foreign minister. That's how unexpected it was. So I think you have to understand the time um, Yeltsin's Russia was very pro-Western, so it didn't seem a problem to begin with. And even, even after the, the, um, the strains over Kosovo, which was the first big crisis between Russia and NATO, it was basically armchair generals who were complaining, who were saying, now NATO's coming to within, you know, we remember the siege of Leningrad, and now NATO's again, you know, at the borders of, 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 of St. Petersburg, with the, you know, Estonia's border with, with Russia. And then the Western nations, you know, you cannot, you cannot really blame the Baltics for wanting to be in NATO, given their history. And also the disparity of size and power between Russia and the Baltics. And if you talk to Balts now or Poles, they will say, we want it in because we were worried that Russia's transition after the collapse of communism would only be temporary and it would go back to its imperialist aims and want to try and control the periphery. And we were right. That's what they think. So, you know, there are different ways of looking at this. But I think perhaps, you know, one of the most, the th one of the things that gets forgotten in today's rhetoric is that even, even in early Putin era, he was, not, um, he was not yet talking about the expansion of NATO as a problem. I mean, one of the first things he did as president was to invite George Robertson, then NATO Secretary General, to Moscow to normalize ties after the Kosovo debacle. Uh, and in a BBC interview with um, an interviewer called David Frost, who's now, long, now dead, um, he said to Putin, could you imagine one day joining NATO? And he said, why not? So, you know, these things have changed. And the, the power of the rhetoric from Putin's Kremlin, this story, this myth, if you like, this new narrative, is now extremely powerful. And of course, it is very... Incredible. And I think the moment when it became, you know, logical where you would say, well, why wouldn't Russia mind, was when the expansion of NATO looked as though it might go beyond, uh, first of all, it was the Baltics and Central Europe, then because of Kosovo, actually, Bulgaria and Romania were brought in. And then George W. Bush flirted with the idea of Ukraine and Georgia. And then you only had to look at a map of the Black Sea. And there was Russia, the Black Sea area, which is its outlet into the Mediterranean, suddenly from all the way around, from Georgia, around Turkey, Greece, Bulgaria, Romania, and Ukraine, what were they left with? A little strip of land near Ekaterinsk. Of course they were going to be unhappy, especially when the uh, president of Ukraine at the time, Yushchenko, was saying he might cancel the lease of the Black Sea Fleet in Sevastopol. So, you know, there was provocation. I mean, I, I personally blame George W. Bush quite a lot for it, because I think it exacerbated some of the policies in those years 
laid problems which um, came back, which are now haunting us now. But I think you also have to be aware that some of today's rhetoric does not actually reflect the reality of the 90s. So that's that one. On the Chinese, the, the idea that neoliberal countries exploited the multilateral system is exactly the argument that Putin uses, that I was trying to lay out in my talk. Um, the question of uh, whether you believe it or not, well, you know, I think I was trying to say, uh, you could look at it, and, you know, there's, there's something to say on both sides. Um, the West is not saintly in this regard. Sorry, I thought you said neoliberal. Non-liberal. Oh, okay. Non-liberal countries exploited it. So by that, which countries do you mean? Russia and China have exploited the multilateral system. Now, today, you mean? In recent decades. WTO and so forth, basically. Remember, we're not playing with it. I suppose so. I mean, actually, you know, let's... WTO is really interesting. Let's leave that aside. I mean, look how what a transformation WTO meant for China and how it's made absolutely no difference to Russia. You know, it's very interesting, these things. Um, but on the, on the second part of your question, do I think the demise of the multilateral system, you mean this kind of liberal order I've been talking about? Uh, so um, some articles and scholars say that uh, internally now liberal order has a problem. Now people uh, pursue non-liberal values uh, such as anti-immigration yeah. and uh, non-tolerance. So uh, if it, it is demise or not working anymore... In Will it implode from within, in other words? Yeah. Yeah. So I think we should be mindful of that. That's what I tried to say at the end of my talk, that we you shouldn't be complacent anymore. We should think very hard about what our societies are and what's important about them, and we should basically behave better <laughs> and get our act together and, um, you know, get beyond this bad period. I mean, the... Stop electing people like Donald Trump, for example. <laughs> um, sort out Brexit. Um, but other things beside, and the immigration policy is certainly something. So the third question was about Russia in the 90s. And I could talk at great length about how what happened in the 90s in Russia set the scene for Putin. Um, I sometimes uh, say that it's like if Russia was a person it had post-traumatic stress syndrome throughout that decade. You know, what happens? Your country falls apart. You know, your aunt in Ukraine suddenly lives in another country. You go into a shop and your pension used to buy quite good food. This week you can only buy an egg. Next week you can't even buy an egg because of the hyperinflation. People not being paid. People dying. I lost a lot of friends who were in their early 40s in the 90s. And it was basically because the hospitals fell apart. And uh, I talked to a WHO official once who said, if you look at the demographics in Russia and the death rate, you know, the shrinking of the population between 1986 and 1996, it was something, I can't remember what it was, but he said you normally only see this in a war zone. That's what Russia went through. Yeah, yeah. And that's why the stage was set for Mr. Putin. So um, could it have been different? Could it have been someone else? Um, or even worse. Um, you know, people were worried about Primakov, who was then... Um, I think well, that's one of the things that the people around Yeltsin were trying to stop. They thought Primakov, who'd been an old ally of Gorbachev's, so he was a, a security man, he, um, he would probably have tried to roll the clock back into something neo-communist. Um, uh, I'm not sure he would have been that different. I think there was a logic about what was going on in Russia, which probably was going to have to play out in this way. But I do, I do remember one um, very rich Russian... Um, businessman who was close to Yeltsin who told me that he was among those who they were scouting out and looking for someone and they thought Putin would be good that he would be um, loyal hard working uh, a good administrator, he'd bring some order back they thought he was honest um, and they thought he was quite reformist and you know western looking because he'd served under a reformist mayor in St. Petersburg and now says this man I bitterly regret that I helped bring him to power so. Uh, hello, uh, thanks. I want to ask uh, the background of Putin, you know, before he became president, curiously, he was like a spy, you know, he, was, he wasn't like a performer, he wasn't a businessman, he was a spy. And does it, does it address, does it uh, kind of explain how he addressed his country? And one more thing, you mentioned that, you know, one the businessman said that we, the world, is become more and more like Russian. On one point, I agree with him. It is 
the world, um, the government knows more about us. The, those in power knows more about us. You know, like previously in the KGB or the Stacey, you know, they hold information about every citizen. I think in this current world, the government or the Facebook or Google certainly knows more about us. And is it threatening, you know, power of citizens to hold them into account on that front? Is it being challenged on that front? Yeah, thank you. So uh, I wouldn't want to challenge your ideas about the sort of confrontation about whatever the West represents and the Russia, Russia's estate now, the values that it represents, because I absolutely subscribe to this, but just wanting to sort of bring the people back in. Um, I was wondering if you have an opinion about what role does the sort of anti-Russian minority policies in the Baltics, which you've mentioned, which have been mentioned a few times today, sort of what role do they play in this kind of confrontation of values today? Um, yeah, so throughout, especially towards the end, there was a lot of emphasis put on um, the fact that essentially all nations across the world, um, the same core values seem to underpin um, society. But so knowing that, I would be interested to find your... Um, so whether you think um, your thoughts on the validity of the following argument being that U.S. foreign policy has perhaps um, dismissed or ignored um, the cultural influences that, so the cultural values um, that influence state leaders and specifically the impact of um, domestic pressures uh, on Putin's actions um, and how that has enabled him to... Um, challenge uh, the characteristics that underpin post-war um, liberal order, specifically um, U.S. exceptionalism? Okay. Three big questions. So Putin is a spy, not a performer. I think that's right. When he first came in, everyone used to say, Kto Putin? Who is Putin? Who's Mr. Putin? Um, I interviewed him twice, once in 2001 and once in 2005. 2001, he'd been in power a year. He still didn't really know, you know, quite how to be. And I remember when he walked in before the interview, none of us noticed. <laughs> He's quite small, and he just had no presence. Six, five years later, 2006, Russia's back. The oil price has shot through the ceiling. They've paid back their foreign debts. He's assertive. He's cocky. The moment he came into a room, there's a sort of hush. You know, he'd found himself. It took a while. Um, I think... Um, I think probably as, a, as his KGB training was useful for helping him understand how you have to be, be malleable, you know, how you have to position yourself to be the right image for a certain audience. And we see that in all these photos, you know, there's bareback horse riding and the judo and everything. <laughs> the, the other thing about him as a KGB officer, I think he would say himself, is total focus on security. One of the very first things he did when he was made acting president was to go along, it was the national day of, national day of S Russian intelligence officers, and he went along to their big meeting and said, you know, basically said, I'm back, you're back, you're important. And that has been a theme which has, been, has gone through his um, presidency. And um, although to begin with people thought he was more, he looked um, like a good bet, I think that came up in the questions, and, you know, this was quite a good option for the West, also, from the very beginning, there was a strong element of suspicion, especially of foreigners, which just got stronger. And I think that the West, particularly George W. Bush, um, has played their part in um, feeding that paranoia, if you like. Um, so, um, uh, the snooping on citizens, it is a feature of modern society. It's partly about technology. It's largely about technology, we all know that, and it is everywhere. Um, how it's going to play out over here and over there, uh, we wait and see, don't we? I mean, we're in the middle of it. Um, it's quite interesting things like GDPR policy in Europe, which we've now adopted here, um, how that might protect citizens a bit. There's also the question of whether the internet is even going to stay a single thing or will break up, and then we'll have different rules in different parts of the world. I mean, already in Russia there are different rules, and in China, right? for being responsible for what your followers say. So that's that question. Um, the Baltics, I think this is a good example of um, where the West has fallen short. 
if the Baltic states had done more to bring their Russian citizens on board, they would have made themselves safer against their fear that Russia might organize dissent from within. And they would have stood up for European values better. Um, I mean, I think now Estonia is trying to do more in order to keep the pressure down. I'm not, I don't know if that's the same in, in Latvia. Uh, Lithuania has less of a problem because of the, it was never that many Russians in Lithuania. It's always, I think, 80 20, 80%, 20%. Um, but I think it's a very good example of, uh, you know, another example of where, where um, if you like, countries in the West have been complacent, think, well, okay, we're now part of Europe now, we're fine, instead of thinking you have constantly to validate the system that you say you're part of by behaving properly. Um, so some of the problems, oh, for those who don't know, are that there was a very, very tough, for example, in Estonia, language requirement to become a citizen. I met one old lady once um, on the streets of Nava, a, a Russian-speaking town on, in the far east of Estonia, and she burst into tears as we were talking. She was originally from Ukraine. Um, she was Jewish, so she'd been brought up speaking Yiddish, but her parents had been killed by the Nazis in the Second World War, and she was fostered to a Ukrainian family, so she had to learn Ukrainian. And then, um, because um, at the end of the war, she ended up in um, Soviet Ukraine, and because um, uh, of, the, of, of what happened then, a lot of people from Ukraine were shipped off to Siberia, so she was went to, sent to Siberia to the camps and had to learn Russian, where she then married um, an Estonian, and he, he, he brought her, no, but a Pole, that's right, she married a Pole, a lot of Poles found themselves in Siberia. He, was, he, he ended up being in the military, and they came to Estonia, but they were in Narva, so she could still speak Russian, and now she was being told she had to learn Estonian at the age of 80. It was just so unfair. And that's a very good example of just a terrible, you know, they were doing it to try and keep themselves safe, the Estonians. They felt if they could only make everyone speak Estonian, somehow they'd make the country Estonian. It's a, you know, it's a terrible example of a policy which went wrong. Um, some core values across the world. So, um, no, I'm trying to read my writing now. Um, yes, whether Putin, by saying... Um, you shouldn't expect us to obey American values because we've got different Russian values, right? So that's the reason why we shouldn't um, have to uh, follow what you tell us what to do. Is that, is that more or less a summary? I can't find the speaker now. Is that what you said, roughly? That, you, that, Russia, that America was trying to impose its values on everyone and say that these were everyone should do exactly the same as what the United States or Europe wanted to do? whereas actually there are cultural differences. Yeah. yeah. But I, I think that's true. I mean, you know, you know, not everybody does want to drink Coca-Cola or wear a white T-shirt <laughs> and jeans. Um, and, you know, you have to be sensitive to different ways of doing things. Uh, George W. Bush used to talk about women of cover in Afghanistan, like they were kind of oppressed by wearing um, a headscarf or, or a burqa. You know, you have to be a bit more sensitive to understand it's not as simple as if people are dressed or behave a way you don't, that they are somehow necessarily oppressed by it. But I do think in the Russian context that Putin subverted this. He started talking about, oh, you talk about Western values, you're trying to impose them on us. In the first place, over the second war in Chechnya, where they were carpet bombing Grozny, and there were old people and invalids and children in those cellars who were being bombed. And particularly in Europe, people talked about this not being... Um, at the time, they thought Russia wanted to be part of Europe, so they'd say, this isn't consistent with European values. And Putin would lash out and say, well, we're Russian, we don't have to do what you do. And then he began to talk about a Russian style of democracy, sovereign democracy, and he started to um, say, well, you know, you're trying to impose your values on us in a neo-colonial sort of way. But I always thought this was an alibi for him saying he didn't actually want to treat his people properly. And um, I think now when he says, you know, you, th this is just the West trying to impose its values on Russia, what he's doing is saying he doesn't want to have freedom of speech. He wants to have the right to lock up his enemies. He doesn't want to treat opposition parties properly. And a good example of why I think ordinary Russians don't always think this, several years ago I went to um, a town, Ariol, in western Russia, which... Um, is um, it's in dire straits. I mean, the, the factories that were emptied at the end of the Soviet Union are still empty. Um, lots of unemployment. People terribly worried about hyperinflation. Lots of people were commuting to Moscow to get jobs because there weren't any in the town. 
Um, and I happened to meet a couple of local um, opposition activists. In old days, they'd have been called dissidents. They were camping out in an old watch factory which had gone bankrupt, and they had a little room there. And the wife was a local activist, and she said, Putin had just brought in a new law um, to uh, declare people foreign agents if they took money from abroad or acted against the state. And I said, aren't you worried about this? And she said, oh, no, everybody here knows me. They know me and Misha. They know we're not foreign agents. And anyway, she said, we need them. She was a lawyer. She just had a call from the head of the local prison service uh, to say, could you come and give us some seminars on European human rights law about how to behave properly in prisons? So, you know, while Putin was saying, we don't want your European values and your European way of doing things, we'll do it a Russian way. At the grassroots, they saw this European case law as very useful for them to try and regularize and bring in, you know, better process in prisons. So I think the last thing I'd probably say when talking about Russia is do not conflate the government with the people. What Putin does and what ordinary Russians want, even if, I mean, these latest opinion polls show how very fluid the view is on Russia about their own country. And um, I think it's quite an open question what will happen there. Okay. Thank you so much for uh, putting Putinism into perspective and into context. And also, I think, reminding those who believe in the liberal order that we have to practice what we preach if we're going to preserve the order that we claim to love. So... A very good reminder to all of us. Thank you all for coming. And if you could, again, join me in thanking uh, Bridget Kendall for being with us here.